Let us pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. God of Abraham, have mercy upon your children. Don't let us destroy ourselves. Have mercy on us, O Lord. And teach us to have the same. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Less than a month after September 11... Ten years ago, less than a month later, a busload of us from Andrews University, mostly students, some faculty and one pastor, drove through the night so that we might stand in that cordoned off edge Where this world was changed forever. There's not a one of us here that cannot instantly recall that slow motion disintegration of those towers, one and two. That mushroom cloud of death, dust, debris. It was a sunny Friday, 1st of October, 2001. We stood on the gaping edge of ground zero. A woman was there. You were there. A woman was there. She was crying. And so as students, faculty... We surrounded her, and she told us, and she pointed, it was right over there. She said, I was standing here, right over there. The wheel of an airplane landed on the street. Then she said, a child's toy fell to the ground. This is almost a month later, and she's still weeping, returning to that sacred Sight. I took pictures that day. I want to share those pictures with you right now.
firefighters you saw, Engine Company 22, were lost in those two towers. And what shall we remember today, ten years later? What if we could remember the lesson of Ground Zero through the eyes of the prologue of the fourth gospel? Open your Bible with me, please. As we continue our New Year series, the last word, the fourth gospel for our final generation. Open to the prologue, our last time in the prologue, number three time in the prologue. We plunge next week into the drama of John. But one last time in the prologue, we cannot miss its pinnacle ending. You didn't bring a Bible, pull out the Pew Bible in front of you. You're going to want to track this short line. It's page 714 in our Pew Bible. I'm in the New King James Version. Any translation you have, it's perfect right now. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, let's read verse 16. And of His fullness... Who's this His? That's the Word made flesh. And of His fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace. Craig Keener, in his two-volume commentary on John, spends an entire page trying to unpack what that Greek phrase could possibly mean. In the Greek, it literally reads like this, grace instead of grace. What's up with that? Grace instead of grace. Keener runs through a host of possibilities. But he concludes that whatever the, whatever the translation, what we have embedded here is the profound assurance that in the Word made flesh, get this, in the Word made flesh, we have an inexhaustible supply of blessing. That's the point. The Christ who becomes flesh the eternal God who becomes one with us unleashes for us an inexhaustible supply of blessing. That point is so critical. We're moving to our reflections on September 11 in a moment, but we need to lock that point in right now. Pull out your study guide, please, real quick. Pull out your study guide. Let's lock that in. Your study guide is in your worship bulletin today. Choir, you have your study guides. Good. You've got your worship bulletins. If you didn't, didn't get a worship bulletin as you came in. Ushers are going to come by your way right now up in the balcony here and overflow in the youth chapel. You need, uh, you need a study guide. Keep your hand up. We'll spot you. Those of you watching on television, we're, de- we're delighted that you're here on this anniversary weekend. This is part three of our brand new series, The Last Word. Let me give you our website. and You can get the same study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you right now. There it is. Website is www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series, The Last Word. This is part three. Title of this series, presentation number three today, The Children of Abraham in the Bosom of the Father, Reflections on September 11 and John 1. When you see that, just click on the study guide. You'll have it. So you get the same study guide. Those of you watching live streaming right now, you can get that study guide as live streaming is taking place. That way you'll be right up. You'll right, be right up to speed with us. By the way, I, I trust that this study guide is a keeper. So hang on to this study guide. You didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up. It's still coming your way. But we need to go. So let's fill it in. Craig Keener, I want to lock in that phrase. What's, what's, what's verse 16 talking about? An inexhaustible grace, instead of grace, an inexhaustible supply of blessing. Key point. When the Word who was God stepped out of His eternity with God and He enters into our human family, becomes God with us, 
He unleashes this inexhaustible supply of blessing. Reminds me of a line from Desire of Ages. Keep your pen moving. Classic line, Desire of Ages. Inspirational uh, recounting of Christ's life. Let's put it on the screen. Desire of Ages. You have to fill it in. The gift of Christ. The gift of Christ reveals the Father's heart. Having undertaken our redemption, He, the Father, will spare nothing, however dear. No truth essential to our salvation is withheld. No miracle of mercy is neglected. No divine agency is left unemployed. I love this. Favor is heaped upon favor, gift upon gift. The whole, and write this in, the whole treasury, the whole treasury of heaven is open to those he seeks to save. Having collected the riches of the universe, not just the riches of heaven, but the whole universe. Having collected the riches of the universe and laid open the resources of infinite power, the Father gives them all into the hands of Christ. And he says, all these are for man and woman. Use these gifts to convince them that there is no love greater than mine in earth or heaven. Their greatest happiness will be found in loving me. End quote. Read that verse again, verse 16. And of his fullness, the word's fullness, we've all received in grace for grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Bosom. Do you know what the word bosom means? Huh? Is that too old an English word for you? Bosom. One of my most favorite people in all this life, as a kid growing up especially, was my great aunt. We called her Auntie Fern. Wonderful lady, my mother's aunt. She was a watch. She married Clayton Forshe, and they were career missionaries in the, in the Far East, and then they came back, and he ended up his career HR director for the General Conference. Anyway, Annie Fern. Annie Fern was a short lady, but a wide lady with a low center of gravity. So you can now picture it, all right? And she was a lover. She just loved people. I'm telling you, she was just one Wonderful woman. She was a lover, which meant that whenever you greeted Auntie Fern, you would step into her wide open embrace. All right? Those little arms would go out. You'd step into her wide open embrace as she greeted you with a nickname that she had just for you. And then she pulled you. She folded you into this expansive hug. What I mean is that when Auntie Fern hugs you, you knew two things. You knew, number one, you were loved And you knew you were surrounded. Because when she pulled your head into her bosom, it was all bosom. Is that okay? So you got the picture. I didn't know if you knew the word bosom. But it was all love. It was all, it was all genuine love from Annie Fern. That is John's point. That's what he's trying to describe here. The word he uses for bosom, kolpos, is the identical word he inserts into the Last Supper upper room account when he describes, you remember this moment, he describes the disciple that Jesus kept on loving. You remember that code phrase, that humble phrase, I'm the one that Jesus kept on loving. He describes himself at the upper room table Reclining. They didn't sit at the table, as you remember. They reclined. And so he has his elbow here. He's eating with his left hand. He has his elbow here. And right beside him, he's sitting next to Jesus. Right behind him is Jesus. And you remember, Peter's going, 
So John, all he has to do, because he says the disciple Jesus loved was leaning on his bosom. All he has to do is just look up into Jesus' face like that. And he asks the question. The word bosom in the Greek. It's a tender. It's a tender term. It's, it's what a daddy does with his, with his child on his lap. It's what, it's, it's what a husband and wife do. It's what dear friends do. It's what John does with the Word made flesh. And it's what the Word made flesh does with the Father. See, that's the point. With the Father. Like this. Robert Smith. Boy, if you can ever get this, his commentary on uh, John. It's, it's, it's entitled, Wounded Lord. It's just a short commentary. Robert Smith translates verse 18. It's in your study guide. Fill it out. Okay, here's how verse 18 reads. He says, The unique one, himself God, who is at the breast of God. Boy, I tell you what, now I, I, get the, I got the picture. See? Who is at the breast of God. He has made God known. Craig Keener comes back with verse 18. He says, here's, how, here's what it means. In the bosom of the Father, verse 18, fill it in. It is describing absolute intimacy. Absolute intimacy. Which is why the, the new NIV, and I'm reading it through right now and I'm loving it. And I'm going to bring it in. I'll, I'll begin preaching from it for a while. The new NIV, the 2011 edition of the NIV just released uh, this spring. They dropped the word bosom completely out. And here's how they put it. Next slide, please. The son who is himself God and is in closest relationship. See, the word bosom has gone because they said nobody knows what the word bosom means. But he's in the closest relationship with the father. That's what it means in the bosom of the father. You can't get any closer than that. So, ladies and gentlemen, what does that mean for you and me? Robert Smith, again, put the words on the screen. And this is provocative. Wait till you get to his punchline. Robert Smith, it's in your study guide. He's writing John's gospel. And he's right, isn't he? John's gospel is usually heard to be asserting Jesus is like God. That way of thinking assumes that we know in advance who and what God is. But this climactic verse of the prologue declares quite clearly that God is not known. We don't know God. That we might know the unseen and therefore unknown God, the evangelist invites us to draw near to Jesus and contemplate his story. The evangelist, Smith goes on, reverses ordinary ideas about the relation between God and Jesus. He is not saying Jesus is like God. Here it comes. Instead, this verse suggests God is like Jesus. Key point. God is like Jesus. It's not Jesus is like God. Oh, No, no. He reminds me of God. No, no, no. It's the other way around. God is like Jesus. The only portrait of God we will ever be given this side of eternity is the picture of Jesus. He is not like God. God is like him. Anyone who has seen me. What does he say in John 14? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This climax to the prologue declares that the only portrait of God we will ever gaze upon, this, this side of eternity, is the portrait, is the picture of Jesus. There is no one closer than He to God. So, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you want to get to know God, you must get to know Christ. That's the only way you will ever know God. Ever. Ever, ever. 
Which, by the way, is the point Steps to Christ powerfully makes. Put it on the screen. Send your study guide. You need to fill it out. This little classic Steps to Christ. None but the Son of God could accomplish our redemption. For only He who is in the bosom of the Father could declare Him. See, there's the, there's the prologue language. Only He who is in the bosom of the Father could declare Him. Only He. Fill that in, please. Only He. Who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it manifest. Nothing less than the infinite sacrifice made by Christ in behalf of fallen man and woman could express the Father's love to lost humanity. End quote. Those who hunger, and I hope you hunger to know God. I join you in that hunger. Those who hunger to know God must know Christ. How did Jesus put it? No one comes to the Father but through me. Say, ah, come on, Dwight. Great point. But what's all this have to do with September 11? Hmm. Well, let, let's see if we can get there from here. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, remember that parable that, that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus describes heaven with the Jewish idiom. Fill this in. He describes heaven with a Jewish idiom in the bosom of who? In the bosom of Abraham. Yep. So let's move from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of Abraham for a moment. The Talmud describes Abraham's lap as the place of the blessed dead. In fact, you hear it today. You hear people say, hey, did you hear about the man who died and went to heaven and St. Peter met him at the gate? You remember that? Yeah, we do that all the time. For the Jews, it was Abraham. You're going to paradise? You're going through? Abraham will meet you at the gate. Jesus seizes this bit of popular lore and weaves it into his parable. In fact, listen to this. Jesus has the rich man in Hades crying out across the gulf to Father Abraham, yo! Father Abraham. Reminds us of that children's song not too long ago. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Cut! That thing goes forever. I'm not letting you go. All right, Father Abraham, because the truth be told, Father Abraham really does have many sons and daughters. Listen to this. He's the father of the children of Israel. He's the father of the children of, of Ishmael. And he's the father of the children of Christ. Jot this down, will you please? All three monotheistic religions on earth today claim Abraham as their father. Jot that down. All three of them. You don't believe me? Let me run the evidence by you right now. Genesis 16, verse 15. Fill it in. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Please note, Ishmael is the eldest son of Abraham. No question. He was a baby son preserved by divine miracle. Fill that word in. He's a baby son preserved by divine miracle because when pregnant mother Hagar, the Egyptian handmaiden, she's driven out of that house. She will have a miscarriage unless God steps in. And he does to the angel of the Lord. Three great firsts in the Bible. First time the angel of the Lord ever appears in Scripture. First time God ever names a baby. First time anybody ever says, I've seen God face to face. And it was all for an Egyptian handmaiden. Servant girl, she must have been pretty important to God. That baby must have been important to God. So, write it down. Uh, next line. He was the father of the children of the East, the father of the children of Islam. 
In fact, I was given a Quran by a visiting imam from Detroit. And in that holy book for the Muslims, did you know this? They tell the story of Abraham on Mount Moriah. And guess who Abraham is offering to God? Ishmael. In the Quran, it's Ishmael. That's why they have the dome of the rock atop the ruins of Jerusalem's temple. Why? Because that's holy ground. Muslims say we are the children of Abraham. They are. But the Jews say the same. And they're right. Look at this. Jot it down. Genesis 21, verse 3. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's only son through Sarah. He was a baby son born by divine miracle. Ishmael was a baby son preserved by divine miracle. Isaac is a baby son born by divine miracle. A year before Isaac was born, the Lord shows up in Abraham's tent. You remember that? He says, you're going to have a baby. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Quit laughing. You are. So on. You remember the story. All right. So, jot this down. Isaac was the father of the children of Israel. That's exactly what Exodus 3.15 says. That means he's the father of the children of Judaism today. And the Jews, of course, today believe that when when Abraham sacrificed his son atop Mount Moriah, it was his son Isaac. Right? But of course. And the Jews consider themselves, therefore, the children of Abraham. And they are. But guess what? They're not alone. The Christians consider themselves the children of Abraham. Jot this down. Galatians chapter 3. Paul writing, if you are Christ, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Isn't that something? Keep writing. Who are these Christian children? They're spiritual children born again by divine miracle. There's a miracle for every first child out of that, out of that clan. Miracle for Ishmael, miracle for Isaac, and miracle for the children of Abraham through Christ. Wow. By virtue of his lordship, the followers of Christ are inheritors of every promise made to Abraham. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. All three monotheistic religions on earth today rightfully claim Abraham as our father. He's our father as well. Which means, now hold on, which means... September 11's tragedy 10 years ago was a tragedy for all three families of Abraham, was it not? Come on, wasn't it? That crime against humanity, perpetrated by a band of extremists, sucked all three monotheistic clans of believers into the same vortex. So here's the question. Then shall all three branches of Father Abraham remain hostile, fractured, and alienated from one another? Could it be that the father of Father Abraham still seeks reconciliation that might yet unite the children of Abraham? Would you be surprised? Just just tell me. Would you be surprised to learn that there is... God has raised up, let me put it that way, God has raised up a branch from within one of the three Abrahamic family clans. He's raised up a branch from one of those three to lead all three to the bosom of the Father. Would that surprise you? 
There is a branch of the Christian family clan that shares more common ground with the Muslim family clan and the Jewish family clan than any other community within the Christian family. No Christian body on earth is as close to both Jews and Muslims as this particular Christian community. I wonder who that community could be. Let me show you how it works with the Jews. With the Jews, this Christian branch shares, and I'll put this on the screen for you. With the Jews, it shares, number one, Belief in the one God. Number two, the seventh-day Sabbath. Number three, the Ten Commandments. Number four, the seven-day creation. Number five, the sanctuary of God and its unique truth. Number six, the truth about death and the resurrection. Number seven, the divine health code. Number eight, the great controversy between God and Satan. Number nine, the spirit of prophecy. Number ten, the great day of atonement judgment. And finally, number number eleven, the truth about the Messiah Redeemer. This branch shares all of that with Judaism. The fact is that had Israel embraced the Messiah when he came to them, there never would have been the need for this branch of the Christian family to have been raised up at all. But the record in the prologue of the fourth gospel is bitterly sad. I remind you, these words are in the prologue. Verse 11, He, the Word, came to His own. Now that's speaking of creation. And His own, that's speaking of people. And His own did not receive Him. Now, I want you to think with me. Had the community of Israel, with her leadership, united in accepting Christ, there would have been no need for any further remnant community. Israel would have carried God's truth to the end. In fact, there would have been no need for the two other monotheistic religions that came after Judaism. Christianity and Islam would never have been born. The truth is that the Jews have no closer spiritual cousins or family than this divinely raised up apocalyptic community within the Christian family. Furthermore, the family of Islam has no no closer spiritual cousin or family within the Christian community than this same apocalyptic branch that we've just noted is close to Judaism. Let me show you that with the Muslims, this same Christian branch shares these major common grounds. Put it on the screen for you. Number one. Belief in the one beneficent creator God. Number two, reverence for the holy book. Different holy books, but still reverence for the holy book. Number three, a life of prayer and commitment to God. Number four, a lifestyle of radical health. No pork, no alcohol. Number five, acts of charity and devotion to God. Number six, an end time judgment. And finally, number seven, the return of Isa al-Masih in the Arabic, Jesus the Messiah. Within the Christian community, to share these seven tenets of faith is indeed a most significant common ground with Muslims, isn't it? So who is this branch within the Christian community that has been raised up to bridge to all three monotheistic religions at this time in history? I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is that community. A community of Christians closer to Jews and Muslims than any other Christian body. But that closeness, now, that closeness does not denigrate its distinctive Christian witness within this community of faith. For like all other Christian communities, in contradistinction to Islam and Judaism, the Seventh-day Adventist Church accepts the testimony of the Jewish writer of the Fourth Gospel, the Apostle John, who himself was a Jewish Christian. And that is the shining truth of the prologue and his entire gospel. 
that Jesus was and is the incarnation of one who shares both deity and eternity with Almighty God, but who came down to the human race, becoming one with us, so that he might die for the human race. And on the third day, he rose again to become our Lord forever and ever. Amen. Which is why, by the way, the Word made flesh in the fourth gospel. John goes to extra lengths to make certain the reader is clear. The Word made flesh is greater than both Moses, who's mentioned 12 times in this gospel, or Abraham, who's mentioned 11 times in this gospel. Let me give you two sample verses where John is driving this point home. First about Moses, John chapter 5, Jesus speaking, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The greater precedes the lesser, of course. John's point, clear. What does he say about Abraham? John 8, 58. Most assuredly, Jesus speaking to a group of Jews. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The children of Abraham and Moses, of Ishmael and Isaac, are the very children the Heavenly Father longs to draw into His eternal heart, which is why He sent His Son. And which is why, and now I need you to be listening very carefully, please. Which is why you and I, as Seventh-day Adventists, must come to the place where we find it painful. You're saying, find what painful, Dwight? Listen. You and I, as Seventh-day Adventists, must come to the place where we find it painful. And I'm speaking about the false caricatures and misrepresentations that YouTube and cyberspace perpetrate against both of these monotheistic communities. If it is the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to build bridges to our Muslim and Jewish friends and neighbors, then of all people on earth, we should reject the impulse to forward any email or any video clip that belittles or attacks the sincere faith of these children of Abraham. I got a, I got a letter uh, two weeks ago from one of our listeners. And the listener said, you obviously don't know the Quran. And outlined for me all the commands that, are, that, that reflect violence. And just wrote it up in a three-page type letter. You're right. Those are all there. But have you read the Old Testament lately? Do you know how long a list I could put together from Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges? How would you feel if somebody pulled all those references out, left them all by themselves, no context, no nothing, but just the gut line, and then disseminated that line and said, this is the Bible she believes in, this is the Bible he believes in. What kind of a religion do they have? Ladies and gentlemen, the golden rule taught to us by the Word made flesh is you treat others the same way you want to be treated yourself. If we as the children of Abraham ourselves seek to destroy the integrity and reputation of godly Muslims and Jews, we engage in what is called fratricide. Do you know what fratricide is? It is the mortal attack of children upon their own siblings. It's children killing their brothers and sisters. Look, agreed, September 11 was an act of tragic fratricide committed by Muslim extremists. We all agree. But our collective response as Adventists, as Christians, cannot be 
to reciprocate in a more subtle but nonetheless destructive manner, using the dissemination of falsehoods in order to destroy a people, no matter how pure our motives might be. We can't do it. If our motivation is to seek and save the lost like Jesus, then there is only one response we can make to attempts to harm rather than save. We must categorically reject those fear-mongering YouTube clips and forwarded emails. No, that will never get past me. That will never go past me. It ended right here. Right here. And we must, in the name of the Word made flesh so that He could save us all, we must seek to build faith bridges to the very ones others are rejecting. That's the whole point. The world may reject, but this is God's opportunity to build a bridge where others have torn it down. That's the point. And for that reason, I wish to take this 10th anniversary opportunity of September 11 to recommit my life to drawing nearer and nearer to the One who is in the bosom of the Father. Because if Jesus is in closest relationship to the Father, then I wish to come into closest relationship with Jesus. That's what I want. Because surely, when I am near to Him, it will be clear to me that I must be near to them too all the rest of the children of Abraham. I want to be that for Jesus. Don't you? Yeah, I do. There's a great hymn I want us to sing in closing. Pull your hymnal out. It's hymn 301 in your hymnal. But there's one stanza that that links us with this verse in the prologue. And I want to put the words... On the screen, because this is the prayer of my heart, and I know it's the prayer of your heart. I just want to get nearer and nearer. Can we put the words on the screen, please? Remember this old hymn, this old gospel hymn? I want to show you this line straight out of the prologue. Look at the words on the screen for a moment. It's hymn 301, by the way. You're finding it in your, uh, your hymnal. But, but look at the screen. Nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart, draw me, my Savior, so precious thou art. Now watch this. Fold me, oh, fold me close to thy breast. We have sung that stanza for years. Now you know where it came from. It's the one who is in the breast of God that we are praying to. May I be drawn close to your breast. Fold me, oh, fold me close to thy breast. Shelter me safe in that haven of rest. I want to go near and nearer and nearer to Him until He comes. Stand with me. Let's sing this beautiful prayer. It is our prayer. Hymn 301.
Holy Father, please answer the prayer we have just sung. Nearer and nearer and nearer, we pray, so that we might be bridges from your heart to theirs. And now may the love of God and the grace of His Son and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with you and me as we go to them. Amen.